Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, my name is Gary Mansfield, and this is the Ministry of Arts podcast, where each week I'll be speaking to a different artist. Hello, and welcome to episode number 62 of the Ministry of Arts podcast. I got so much love for last week's episode, which was Ryan Stanier from the Other Art Fair. I did have a few people contacting me asking me if I'd be at the other art fair and it just so happens that I've been speaking to Ryan and his team at the other art fair to do a little pop-up project at the October show and if we can sort the logistics out it, it might just happen. But getting back to this week's episode, I met up with a charity called Safe Ground. They take the arts in various forms into British prisons to help the guys in there not just rehabilitate, but help them keep their family and relationships intact while they're in prison. I mean, no matter what you think of people in prison, if you or a family member had made a mistake and got yourselves in that position, relationships can fragment at an amazing pace. I mean, losing your liberty is part of your sentence handed down. Losing a relationship is just a god-awful side effect. In Safe Ground's own words which I've taken from their website, states, Safe Ground works to promote relationship skills as tools for empowering people to change, so reducing the risk of reoffending and building stronger communities. I mean, come on, what's not to high-five a statement like that? So come with me to the HQ of Safe Ground. But firstly, have a listen to these naughty little bongos. (coughs) 
crazy. So we're an arts education organisation. Historically, that's our kind of genesis. And the founders were theatre practitioners. So art is kind of part of our DNA. It's yeah. part of everything we do. And Nikki was really into the idea of podcasts because if you don't podcast these days, yeah, you don't exist. Doing it. You should yeah. do. So we're always looking to collaborate with artists in different ways. Yeah. So it's lovely to meet Gary. Oh, good. And you never know what might happen. I'll start by saying that today I'm at Safe Ground with Charlie, Keisha, Nikki. Okay, and the first question that I asked is, how would you explain what you do to someone that doesn't know Safe Ground? So, I'm a volunteer student at Safe Ground at the moment. Okay. I only joined Safe Ground in September, so I'm still relatively new. So, from my perspective, Safe Ground is an arts organisation that works in prison and the community to use arts is sort of used as an express as, a, as an expression so um, you it's hard to speak to people with words sometimes so to use um, either drawing or um, discussion plays things like that yeah um, so yeah and there's lots of different programs <laughs> which they run and um, a lot to do with family and fathers so one of them's fathers inside and family man mm. and they are to do with um, the role that men have in prison as a father and um, the role that they play within their family because yeah, the, the father is forgotten quite a lot of time when you refer to prisoners people think about the, the mothers in prison but the, although a lot of them are fathers it does get sort of um, forgotten a little bit the role doesn't it there's so much to say and I'm conscious of talking too much and I want to hear Keisha's description of safe ground as well but and a lot of the work that we do is about the fact that a men have not been very active or present previous to prison or have and want to sustain that or have or haven't but don't want that Mm. to happen during incarceration they don't want their children coming to see them in jail yeah so there's a massive permutation of how dads experience fatherhood pre-prison, during and then after and I suppose some of the work that Nick is describing is about that might, so that has some stuff for you dad but it also has meaning for your children and they're different and actually whilst you've got to be able to deal with the stuff for you you've also got to be able to think about them and so the work that we do encourages and enables people to start thinking outside themselves yeah because when, when you just said about the fathers not wanting the children to come up that is a double-edged sword because although they're trying to protect their child they're losing out on dad exactly and if the children are young enough i know from my own experience when my niece and nephew used to come up to see me they just saw me as being at work which is what you know most children get told so one of the in Fathers Inside, there's a particular exercise called the honest phone call that the men work up to using drama and role play around disclosing to their child where they are. Mm. Because so many people lie to their children for obvious reasons. Yeah. And it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Of course you would. The most recent one was I'm in a chocolate factory. Yeah. But, you know, your child's getting searched. Your child is surrounded by radios and keys and uniforms and yeah. locked doors. 
this is not a chocolate factory, is it? And dogs. Yeah, because when I was a kid, it used to be the oil rig. Daddy's working on that oil old rig. chestnut. Yeah, of course. And so, and children hear other. Ch- so, the idea being that honest communication is really challenging and really difficult yeah. and throws up loads of hurdles. But actually, as a result of that, it enables you to do something different in mm. your relationship. And um, often men reel at the thought of telling their children where they are. Yeah. But then their partner is the one at home when the kids come and go, Mommy, Dad, so-and-so said, Dad. Yeah, yeah. Well, what is she supposed to do then? Yeah. Because he's saying, don't you dare. And the kid isn't silly. No. What? So it's her or grandma or whoever it is left in this impossible situation lying. Yeah. Well, I've found myself, when I come to telling my children, um, I, um, I mean, I had my children once I was released, but to tell them that I'd spent all this time in prison, I'd just done it in a matter-of-fact way, and they took it as a matter-of-fact way, just like I broke my leg when I was 12. I went to prison when I was mm. 26. You know, they ask a few questions, and it just becomes something they've done, you know. And I think it is very... I wonder if the context around what the what the activity was, how you yourself feel about your involvement in criminal activity. You know, for a lot of men who have a persistent and perpetual offending history and time in and out of jail, for a lot of men who have committed crimes that are very violent yeah. or that bring with them a lot of shame and stigma or for a lot of men whose family find it really difficult to know about it. You know, it's, on the one hand, great, good for you, that's amazing, and I understand that. It's like, if you can tell people you're gay and that's it, it's a fact, move on, great. But if you feel shame or the weight of it in a different Mm. way, it's like when you, if a baby falls over, it looks for your response, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's that kind of dynamic, I think. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm such a different person myself to how I was... When I got arrested, I was in quite a violent environment for, for years before. As in, I was a, a doorman, bodyguard, debt collector. You were not a bodyguard. That sort of thing, No, yeah. you weren't. Yeah, no. I was, very much so. Oh, my debt God. Debt collector, that, that sort of the violent... You were not a debt collector. I've got, I was, yeah, I was. I was just using what I had. I've always been a big fan. Have you told your kids that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's yeah, the real one. Of course you are. But they didn't know me as that. They, uh, yeah. Oh this, I know I go on about it a lot, but this mm. art changed me so much. It's saying it changed my identity. It changed me completely as a person. I was an arsehole before. I was one of those not not a bully, but I had a completely different attitude to everything, to absolutely everything. Um, and my children don't know me as that. They just knew me as dad. You know, I was I was never violent, shouting. I didn't swear indoors around my kids. Um, I, was, I was just a totally different person. So much so, and, and even when um, the part my partner, when we met, she just knew me as as Gary Mansfield. I've got an, an alias I use as the old the old me. I call Roy Maynard. Because that's the name I used to use when I booked in hospital, um, hotels and got pulled over by the police. That's the division when my life changed. Gary Mansfield was reborn. I even referred to myself as a born-again artist. They didn't know, sorry, they didn't know Roy Maynard. They only knew me. 
and I know you've sort of explained it a little bit, but do you know what it was like that colander and reading the book and having the art teacher tell you read about it before you slag it off and then seeing the thing and thinking what load of old took and then reading it and you said it made you think differently. Mm. Sorry to bang on. You're I don't. Quite right. I don't even know what. The, I suppose I'm asking if you can distill the. Because you said literally overnight you fell in love with this conceptual art because of that, what you understood about the meaning of that particular Well, piece. I think it resonated with me. She was locked out of, of what she loved and, and her family and everything else. She was outside the colander. And it was just... It, it made me think differently, look at the, laterally, uh, about the artwork that was in here. So then I would look at Tracy Emin's tent. And before, when I thought it was just a tent... Now I was seeing this artwork with a story. And I did think, how can she say all of that with that colander? With a colander and a bag of nuts and bolts. And when I read the story, she has told me about her family's history, her family's present, her family's future. Global politics. With a colander and a bag of nuts and bolts. Mm. And then I thought, if you can tell that much, she's condensed that whole story... Got, she's trimmed the fat of everything and ended up with the bare bones. And I've done the work. She's made me, the viewer, do the work. But I've understood what she was trying to say. And that conceptual art, for me, was a language I didn't understand, or I realise now that it was a language I didn't understand, and now I'm quite fluent. That's that's only quite poetic. Yeah, it does. Sure, yeah. <coughs> it's really interesting because poetry, the form of the... the process of poetry I suppose is condensing, condensing, so. condensing, condensing the fewest words possible for the biggest meaning. Mm. And I did see that you have Lady Unchained and Joel Taylor. Joel's one of our patrons. Shh, they're both of them. I worked with the pair of them only for one night um, a couple of years ago at a poetry cafe um, and Lady Unchained. Are you with her that night? Yeah. Was trying to come here. Did yeah, you see just, me there that night? Oh, I don't remember. Well, oh no, the night that I was there, it was to do with um, Death Row. Oh. No, I wasn't. The night no, that's the night that's when I was one. there. Wow. Because my friend um, puts artwork on for the people on Death Row. Wow. And I was trying to sort of promote what she was doing at the time, and yeah. we got invited down for that. Yeah, brilliant. And well, Brenda, they're amazing applied for a mentorship scheme that Joelle was running that we supported. So Brenda came and sat in this chair and was interviewed and got a mentorship with Joelle for a year. Yeah. So, yeah, we know Brenda well. Mm. And Joelle's been our patron for about five years now. Brilliant. She's one of the finest. Yeah, Joelle is... And I was saying to Nikki, oh, Gary might not be interested in us, but maybe I want to talk to Joelle or Deanna or Jason or... No, well, I'm down to talk to Brenda anyway, Lady Unchained. Uh, we just couldn't um, we, we tried to do it a couple of months ago just couldn't get the dates down Great. I think she does a podcast as well she was at the Cursler show yeah. um, the opening and we was chatting there and she was saying that she wants to start a podcast and I was just saying well I was just telling her how to go about it Great. I mean you can never have too many podcasts right? of course <laughs> of course but there will work. do you listen to there's a Justice podcast I've heard there's the lockdown, there's a couple from the States that look really good. Yeah, see, I've listened to a few and I don't like the ones that sort of dramatise it and I, mm. I'm, I'm not into that. 
but the justice one, which is um, Edwina Grosvenor. Edwina Grosvenor. Oh, do you like it? Uh, yeah. I haven't heard. I was on it. That one was amazing. <laughs> I heard about yeah. it. I think you got the most listens it, of any. One of them, yeah. 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 Brilliant. I it was or a tumble. Yeah. <laughs> or a, yeah. Anyway, safe ground. What's the history of safe ground? Um, so the history of safe ground is that Antonio Rubinstein and Polly Freeman were quite uh, well established well-educated young women who were studying, I think, applied drama, applied theatre at a London college in their kind of early 20s. They'd been involved in sort of media and theatre and work before. They were studying applied theatre and they started to understand that, oh, drama's like a transformational man. And they, Antonia lived in a muse house on Lavender Hill in Battersea. And they kind of had this idea about art being transformational. So they started doing work in the local community in Wandsworth. They had a choir. They did some puppet shows. They did all sorts of stuff. And then Antonia, who was very socially aware and kind of into ideas of justice, started understanding that a disproportionate number of young men in Glenpava at the time were committing self-harm and self-inflicted death and she was very concerned about it anyway they were the days when you know she made a phone call and got invited into the prison so uh, she went in and did some drama work but um, that's all right so they went in and did some drama work with the young men and it went really well so Antonia thought to her credit oh maybe they're just being nice to us you know that was a bit easy we need some critique from a harder audience so um, they went into Wano and the men in Wandsworth said, oh miss that was great we really like that, I mean they didn't necessarily speak like that, you know what I mean can you help us stop our sons following in our footsteps basically, so Antonio was like oh my god we've struck gold at the same time that the home office as it was then was understanding a correlation between family ties and reoffending. Lo and behold, the Home Office contacted Antonia, who was running a arts-based charity in prison yeah. spaces, which was unusual then. Um, we're talking 25 years ago, and said, "Can you create a drama-based family program for men in UK prisons?" Ah. Uh-uh. Okay. Yeah. So they spent the next kind of 15 years working on that basically and everything else. No more puppet shows, no more choir, no more community yeah. activity. Well, they, they try all these different things just to see which one's connecting with the most people, don't yeah. they? And as soon as something sort of literally strikes gold, then and it's there. Well, and that has its pluses and minuses, doesn't it? Because like any fashion, what happens when it fades? Yeah. Anyway... So um, Family Man and Fathers Inside were kind of created through that 10-year process and were trialled and delivered at their height in a network of 20 prisons nationally. Uh, And so in 2010, Safe Ground had Family Man and Fathers Inside running in a network of about 10 prisons, I'd say, and then 2011... We changed the model slightly, expanded and grew the network to about 18 prisons. So that was its height. 
And Family Man, funny enough, used to be the most popular of our programmes, which is the one that is for men without children. Yeah. Um, but Family Man used to be seven weeks long, full time. It was the only programme, non-accredited programme of its kind. In how was it funded? By the young office or...? How was it funded or how yeah, is it funded? I, know, I can imagine. So we had government funding to support the delivery of those programmes until 2014. Since then, we've had no government funding yeah. at all. Um, that's another podcast, probably. <laughs> um, and that has its benefits as well, to be fair. you know. Did you have any statistics of reoffending? Yeah, we've got a 40% reduced reoffending rate on the just, Justice Data Lab figures for fathers wow. and sons. And what's, what's the average reoffending rate for a, a young man in Britain? Um, Within a year, it's like yeah. 60% yeah. or something. I mean, it's 16 percentage points. The, our yeah. justice data lab you can critique that in and of itself it's useless meaningless mm. but we've got a whole heap of other external evaluations which as a part of yeah. it tells you a really comprehensive story about the impact of the programs they're really good and they are and we're not people who go in to fix people you know it's not about you're a bad dad and we're going to shame you the programme is about men actually taking some agency over their own lives. Yeah. And we're not unique in that sense. The best work, we believe, is that actually you're a group and you need to make a set of decisions about what you want to do. Um, so we don't exclude anybody from our programmes. You're an adult. I'm not going to yeah. tell you can't come in the room, for Christ's sake. If you don't want a beer, just leave. It's yeah. not difficult. That's between you and the jail. But if you're here, there's certain expectations about how you're going to and economically there are lots of different ways of kind of looking at the cost and I suppose listening to you talk actually for us it's as much about the fact that what is the price for someone taking the lid off their head and being in the world in a way that means they can find meaning and value in things that Mm. they didn't before you can't cross that and actually what does that mean in terms of safety and security and care and compassion and consideration for other people what does that mean it means that actually the world is a better place. Definitely. And ultimately, you can't put a price on yeah. that. And giving someone the tools to be creatively minded is amazing because it just makes everyone think in a different way. Le- we, I think one of the things that we are increasingly really conscious of is the fact that we're not really taught to think and thinking and questioning and challenging your own values and mm. attitudes as well as those of others is actually really difficult it's really demanding and it's mm. quite an intense process so and a lot of the men that take our particular all our programs say oh my god I slept so well last night I haven't slept like yeah, yeah because yeah. you're exhausted because yeah. you've been working and, and getting away that bravado that a lot of guys have as well the bravado gives you a sort of fake foundation for your opinions anyway as soon as you cut that away then you just look like you're free thinking and it is fucking oh sorry it's, it's amazing totally and who I guess we wrote a programme with um, Ormiston for their probation contract long story they needed a group work programme so they asked us to help them create one. We did, but it was called Who Am I? <laughs> Who am I? Like, take away all that. Mm. Who am I? Yeah. It's actually quite a tricky question to answer if you've never thought mm. about it. But it's also fundamental to who am I in relation to others then. Yeah. 
Well, that definitely broke down the barriers with me, is when I started being critical of other people for the things they were saying and the things they were doing. And then it wasn't until one day I went, fucking hell, I do that. Mm. That's me as well. The people think I'm like that. You know, if I think I'm like that, then other people do. And then it was, a, a, you know, a, a crescendo of a lot of things happening all at once that made this a moment that I just went, right, that's it, I'm going to change me. And never looked back. Self-awareness is one of the things that we say our programmes are all about. You know, if you can't understand the impact of yourself on somebody else, it's a very insular way to... Your world's going to be yeah. very small because people will not... The, you'll repel people. Yeah, but in there, being nice has a ripple effect. Because, you know, just the same as, as hate or, or aggression. Mm. You know, if, if someone next door is aggressive, that makes you aggressive. If someone's nice, it really does ripple through. Although people do think that you're a, a bit weaker. You know, if you, if you make a fundamental change to yourself, you do have the sort of... Um, the, the more red-blooded men try to sort of uh, think that you're a bit weak and, you know, that ends up, you know. And I think what really helps is, because of what you were just saying about that, that might seem like you're weak, being in a group and having the strength of other people around mm. you, possibly going through the same thing, maybe not, but at least acknowledging that you don't want to maybe talk over someone when they're talking is a big step and it kind of helps maybe to feel like oh I know that that person was in the group with me and maybe they heard what I said but they're not going to like a treat me any different there, yeah. yeah so having that bond with like maybe four or five other people is mm. kind of nice for when you're out of the group even if you don't talk to them it's nice to know that actually someone's listening to me yeah. and I was able to talk without someone talking over me or shouting at me for five minutes and that was nice and I think people having that kind of space just to talk about whatever they need to talk about is really important and maybe I mean I, education is really important as well but having that kind of classroom setting when someone's telling you what to do it is not the same as you just openly talking yeah. about what you're feeling and what you need right now so that you don't become mm. Roy you know yeah there was a program that ran I think December 2017, <coughs> excuse me, our colleague David, who works freelance for us running Father Inside, was in Stockholm with a colleague from the education department. They were running Fathers Inside and we were trialling new material because we've been revising Fathers Inside. We've updated it. So we were going in every Wednesday for half a day and David and Marta were running the programme for the four weeks and they had a group of 20 men. The average is 14, but they had 20. 20 started, 20 finished. It's a big group. And they had a room where you could just fit 22 people in there as long as no one moved. So it's quite, you know, on top. And I think the youngest was 19 and the oldest was about 52. <clears throat> so granddad down to expectant. They had two expectant dads in there. And that group completed the programme. They did a five-week Fathers Inside programme, completed the programme. They continued to meet of their own volition. Mm. They kept in touch. Their bond was so strong. And they weren't all on the same wing or anything. They didn't know each other before they started the programme. That group has kept in touch. Yeah, nice. Yeah, a bit common ground between strangers. Mm. And... Those two men, one of the babies was brought in as a week old to come and see the final presentation. You know, those men really had some very difficult conversations yeah. about racism, about structural inequality, about injustice, about 
<clears throat> about shame, about loss, grief. You know, they really yeah. went there. And it's, it is surprising how you can have a really decent conversation about race, sexuality, gender. If everyone just brings their walls down a little bit and stops being so defensive and just allow everyone in and we, everyone exchanges experiences, it can be a really mind-changing or life-changing thing even. Mm, totally. And I think... And that part of the ethos that we share with a lot of other organisations, I think, is... And that is also true for facilitators. You know, we are not any different. We're in different circumstances. I'm not in jail. I've never been in jail. Mm. But it's not as if something's not also happening for me in that process. We're yeah. in a dynamic, we're in a relationship. I am affected by the emotional work that I'm doing. So all our staff are in regular clinical supervision because you can't think that this isn't affecting yeah. you. You yeah. are, and the staff, your tool, <laughs> your tool is yourself. You are working yourself in order to make that group useful. Mm you are using yourself that has a huge cost to it yeah. and it's highly skilled but it can't be underestimated and you can't go in and do work like that around people's fibre yeah. and not take it very seriously and kind of reflect on mm. what it means for you because mm. you're also learning and being challenged yeah. and yeah. having to think about your own values and attitudes the first time I went in a sex offenders prison I spent that train journey Challenging all my own prejudices. I've got exactly Sorry. the same story. I had to go in and give a... a well, I didn't have to. I was doing these um, art workshops off my own back and I went into Chelmsford and I was doing one in the morning, one in the afternoon for the education sessions. They said, would I mind working with the VPs? And I went, yeah, sure. Not a clue what a VP was. They was never called that when I was in there. They called a few things, but never, never a VP. <laughs> And I've just thought it might be the volunteer party or something. You know, I didn't know what to give. And then I'm standing there, and I'm, it was a jail that I'd been in, and I was looking over onto D-Wing, which is where the VPs were housed. And then they've started filing out. And I was... Well, what I was thinking doesn't matter. But they was walking towards me, and then I just went, fucking hell, VP. Vulnerable prisoners. And then I was like, oh, fuck. Oh, fuck. <laughs> and well I, I it challenged me for about two years because one of them looked like he was on the brink of doing of topping himself he was that in that much of a state mm. I sort of deflected it and then it sort of started sinking in and where I'd changed so much as a person before I would have just gone out oh, whatever get on with it but in the end I'm going to him don't do that mate you know like after this you know, after two years, you'd have done because he had fourteen years. I was saying after two and a half years, you know, it you you'd be a quarter of the way through your sentence, yeah. And then this and and then I, I was conflicting myself because I've just been showed a bit of empathy to someone who disgusts me, and I didn't know whether I'd done the right thing or the wrong thing in in my own heart. I didn't know if I'd gone too liberal, and well. I've discovered that the end result was I went in there to try and help prisoners. He was a prisoner. I helped him. It was a success. Well, I could talk about this for days. Likewise, I've I've held back on a lot of of folks that went through it. And not just around sexualised offending. 
but around, you know, a a lot of the people that we work with will have committed sexualised offences. They're just not convicted or indicted of them. Mm. So let's get that straight. There's an awful lot of men serving for armed robbery who might have committed rape or mm. had coercive sex in their lives. Just saying. Mm. B. There's an awful lot of violent crimes that are unthinkable. Yeah. The men I work with are lovely. You know, I have the luxury of meeting people in a particular context at a particular time for a particular purpose. But I'm, you know, sometimes I... We're having a great time and everything's lovely and I'm very aware that, oh, my God, if I met you... But then on the flip side to that, I've had that with me. I was in for drugs. I've had people have that really negative attitude because I was a long-term prisoner. And blank me, just like... I would, a paedophile. Mm. And these are the things, I suppose, that... Right, you know, if I were to tell you some of the most awful things that I feel ashamed of having done in my life, I don't know, that's why I don't tell you then. Mm. I mean, to be fair, <laughs> you know, it's true for most yeah. people. Well, there's yeah. a lot of people for whom that is not true. And maybe I'm particularly harsh on myself. I don't know. I think the point being <clears throat> how we conceptualise harm mm. and shame and punishment and crime is an old-fashioned trope that we don't challenge very often. And actually, there is much more danger probably around us not in prison Mm. than we are encouraged to believe. And there is an extraordinary amount of not very dangerous humankind currently wallowing in filth and unnecessary harmful conditions suffering and not recuperating or generating any kind of creative output you know it's a massive contradiction actually and And it doesn't take too much to rehabilitate a person or at least put them on the tracks to want to be rehabilitated because most of the time I found, I mean, when, when I went away, even though I went away for 14 years, and I was set up, um, if, I, if I didn't go away for that, it, I would have got as much going away for something else. And I've always said that. I've never taken it to heart. Because if I wasn't a criminal, I wouldn't have put myself in that position to get set up. And that's, I suppose that's part of the point, isn't it? You know, having the self-awareness to understand that it wasn't... That wasn't my fault, but actually the context that I was Mm. moving in or the arrangements that I had around my life, it was inevitably that was going to happen. Of course it was. And blame and fault aren't helpful, but I suppose understanding the patterns that we all get into, that the structures that we build for ourselves, if you're not aware of them, you're very vulnerable, actually. I I did see crime as exactly the same as an addiction because it was my life. Everyone I knew was an addict, a criminal. Mm. Crime was justified all the time. No matter what happened, we would most of the time justify it. Um, But society doesn't see it like that. They can justify a drunk. They can justify an economic disaster Mm. as being immoral but not illegal. They can justify a climate disaster, an oil spillage, Mm. or a village being flooded or 
deconstruct, they can justify yeah. that. Actually, society's really good at justifying crime sometimes. Yeah, but possibly not the criminal. Well, and it depends, I suppose, on where you are in the pecking order mm. as to how... I mean, I justify... I, I separate myself from everything I've done, and I just... Even when I've met people now, you know, they go, you know, he was a right arsehole to me a few years ago. Mm. And I go, look, I apologise for that, but that was a different me. I'm not that person anymore. Again, Roy, you know, he's my, mm. he's my sort of go-to excuse, if you know what I mean. It's, you know, if someone does something when they're 10... You, you don't hold them to account for it when they're 35, you know, because they didn't know any better. That I was that 10-year-old at 25, mm. you know, so I justify myself that way. A lot of the men, we were in um, a prison a couple of weeks ago running the first week of the new fam- <coughs> Family Man programme and the men were saying a lot of what you were saying, you know, crime was, it's what we do, there's no victim to this crime, blah, 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 or there is a victim, but... That's kind of collateral. Mm. Um, the emotional and intellectual maturity to think about not only yourself, but yourself in relation to other people, mm. that's what I think mm. the way that we use, we use artistic practice and we use therapeutic process. Mm. And the two in combination create an opportunity for people to think and feel. Yeah. And that is kind of all you can ever hope for. That's yeah. why I go to the theatre. That's why I enjoy watching a good film or eating nice... You know, it impacts you, doesn't yeah. it? And if you, can, if you can install a bit of empathy, that, that can be a, a, a mind-changing thing as well. Because totally. as soon as you start appreciating your fellow man... Yeah, it gives you a different outlook. You won't commit some certain crimes. You won't do certain things, even in life, even if you're not a criminal. As soon as you sort of take on board a bit of empathy, mm. you have a totally different outlook. Question. Go on. Did Roy... Was Roy without empathy? No, he wasn't. Exactly. This is what I've said a few times. Oh, sorry to get a bit too excited. It's all right. <laughs> we can handle that. What I always say is that I used to do things that had no empathy... But after I'd done them, I felt bad about them. So I knew that that wasn't me. That was the bravado, the gangster thing. That was for to show everyone else that I'm tough and mean. And inside, I weren't. I knew that deep down, I'd have regret about what I'd done. I might hit someone for the second time. I see the look on their face before I hit them the second time and hit them still. And that was wrong to start with and even wrong the second time. I, I felt guilty about those things afterwards and I knew that the the villainous Gary wasn't real. I knew that he was and I've known that for years. And that the reason I asked the question is because I think for us all we're doing is creating a space where people can bring their empathy out. Mm. It's not us instilling it. People have it. The very rare people that don't are not going to be sitting in a fucking education no, room doing no. Family Man. Well, when I started doing these artworks when I was away, I was doing these big barbed wires that were like a war hold. They were just two colours, a, a very light colour, like yellow, and a dark colour, like blue, for the shading. And I would draw them out. People would buy them off me, and I'd put, like, little images of profiles of them or their children or, or something... might be Jamaica, for instance, like the shape of, of the island... 
hide it within it and that's what yeah. people liked so I'd charge like I can't remember like a tenner for this painting or I'd say come and paint it with me and I charge you a fiver so I'd draw it out get all the paints and he'd come and draw it with me and there was one guy there called Dave I won't say his surname he was he was the one that the hard nuts were scared of he agreed and he was sat there and I was painting I had, I had like an easel thing that I made on the wall he was sat at my desk painting and he went to me and I was, I was shitting myself while he was there because he was, he was so unpredictable you know anything can uh, switch him on and um, as we were painting he went yeah why did that Picasso paint like he did and I was so close to tears that this thing of art has got through to him. Do you know what I mean? I mean, he was still a complete sucker Dave, I love you. But just, yeah, just for that moment. <laughs> that's the thing that I've been searching for ever since because that was, that's why I've, I've worked with prisoners afterwards because it, if it can get through to someone who, you know when I said earlier, but when I hit someone for the second time, I felt bad. Yeah. Not many good qualities. Yeah. But for a moment, that all went away. Exactly. And I think that's... We assume that mm. and work on the basis that that's what we're interested mm. in, really. Yeah. The, you know, the the disappointments and the letdowns and the suffering that you have experienced that have stopped you from engaging in that way. Yeah. They're they're wrong. That should not. That's not what should have happened to anybody. Yeah. And because it has happened a load of other stuff has happened yeah. and here's an opportunity to reimagine what it would be like to integrate those experiences that you can't not have yeah. but in a way that mean that that's not all there is yeah. you don't have to keep repeating that now mm. there's something else and once you've experienced it you can't unexperience yeah. it so you've sat in a room with 20 other men and you've loved them you've cared for them you've felt for them you've cried with them you've shared with them you've had an row with them that hasn't come into violence. Yeah, yeah. You've disagreed with someone. You've learned someone. You've, you know, you can't not have had that now. You know it's possible. Mm. Off you go. But remember that happened because it did, and it was really real. Yeah. And that gives you a new way of considering yourself in relation to others. Do you have any of these programs running at the moment? Yes, we do. Um, yeah. So we have. Family Man running, Fathers Inside running. We haven't got Man Up running at the moment. We have our own stories, the women's programme running. And we have just come to the end of a cycle of officers' mess at HMP Whitemore, the therapeutic group work for prison officers. Wow. So That's a good that's, that's an unlikely one to do, and that's that's a, a good thing that that people um, sort of ignore them, don't they? And the, and the shit and stress they have to go through on a daily level for society so Officers Mess was born out of Man Up was born out of the fact that oh my god we're working in this really authoritarian, really disciplinarian really traditional macho culture to try and talk about family and love (laughs) it's a contradiction, it's ridiculous so Man Up was kind of a response to that and trying to encourage staff in the prisons where we were running it to think about masculinity and what Punishment and yeah. does to people, and then officers' mess came out of the fact that working with men in prison is part of the process. Some men want to engage in artistic practice, and that is helpful to them. 
if you're not going to work with staff to think about what they're doing and what is happening, you're not really fighting much of a battle. Mm. But we became really aware of the fact that prison officers have, have a very privileged position in the sense that they can escalate an incident that isn't even an incident. Oh, I saw that look. so often. It's a... Getting rid of the squadding mentality out. When you had more of the career prison officer come in, I was there at the, 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 the mix of that as well. The squaddies were a pain in the arse. But you did know where you stand with them. You knew they was an arsehole, and that was it. Just like anyone, really. And I guess you could talk to 100 prisoners about prison officers and you'd get 150,000 different anecdotes and opinions. Mm. The work that we want to do with Officers Mess is asking officers to reflect on authority and power and what it is and how it affects them and how it is done in their job and what the institution and the system requires of them in order to contain and control a prison. Mm. You know, it's a really profound place to be really in a uniform on a wing with 40 80 men in front of you who hold the balance of power let's not forget any minute it's really there's two of you what is that and how does it affect you so part of Keisha's work has developed into kind of running a series of events um, one of which was called the F word uh, the F word being feelings. Feelings! That was it. Uh, not feelings. <laughs> Don't want any of those. Yeah. So the whole the whole purpose of the event was that we had one of our uh, alumni members that had been in a Category A prison, and then um, on the seg he'd been on the seg on the seg yeah, and then we also had a serving officer. Um, Who works in a category a as well? on the seg in a category? Yeah, it works in a seg, and they had a conversation together. Um, we hold our events at the Roundhouse, so they had a conversation together about um, what what that dynamic was, what that meant at the start, and how they were feeling through that. And then we also had some questions from people um, yeah. because it yeah from the audience because it was such a strange kind of atmosphere to be in because you know this this the um woman that was still a serving officer you know she, she doesn't want to she want to come across as like preachy yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and and also exactly what we were talking about in officers mess is like how do you have that or um power but also she was very comfortable saying that she she cares about people she's there in that job because she wants to help people but also has to do these certain things and, and restrain people in a certain way. So that was a really interesting conversation that we had, and the they, audience were really um, engaged and asked some, um, I can't remember the questions now, but asked some really interesting yeah. Yeah. and um, really, like, prodding quite a bit. But it was, it was. I don't think, I, I don't know any other event that's kind of done that. So we've kind of, in our events, we kind of try and push the boundaries a little bit and get people involved so that they feel like they can learn more about criminal justice because that's not something that you can read in a newspaper, or maybe you do, but I mean, <laughs> it's not going to... It's going to be a one-sided kind of view. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that's what we try and do in our events. Are you going to say something? Only that. Um, Liam's in uniform for that event. She got permission to attend that event in uniform, which is quite a big deal. And that... It'll come back to me. Sorry. <laughs> 
How did you feel about that, being, having the uniform on? Uh, did it make you feel different? No, it didn't make me feel different. Oh, I think it, it made the, our, our alumni member feel, yeah. feel very different. And yeah. I think he had to have a, a bit of talk with himself before he came in. And we, we said to him as well, you know, if you, do, if you feel uncomfortable any time, it's up to you if you want to do this. But, you know, he's great. Um, and, yeah, I think that did affect him quite a bit. Yeah. The kind of, like, key... They did, like, a little, like, um, um, role-play, yeah, drama um, piece before... And it was like a little bit about keys, and that was a bit like, oh, I think yeah, that brought up a little bit of something. Years later, I've been out fucking 15 years. He'd yeah. been out six years, and it really rocked him. And yeah. he wasn't expecting it to. Yeah. And that's what I was going to say. In the audience at that event, we had the mother of one of our colleagues who had recently been found dead in his cell. Oh, wow. And she wanted the prison officer to explain to her how her son had been allowed to die under the supervision of agents of the state whose sole responsibility was his safety. Mm. So she was asking some extremely difficult, quiet, pointed questions. Nobody else in the audience understood the context and the officer had to kind of... We obviously... ..stepped in to facilitate that conversation... Um, but a amazing that she came to that event. Mm. She knew full well what it was going to be, and we talked to her about what it was and wasn't. Yeah, yeah. B that the officer was able. We had briefed the officer to say, "Look, this is a possibility. We'll deal with it, but just be aware." Just roll with it. Yeah. And everyone, I mean, what it did allow was a kind of understanding of the gravity of what we're talking about, and the event that Keisha had arranged the, just before that was called a matter of life and death and it was about what happens how do you keep people alive in deathly situations mm. and that sometimes you can't mm. and you don't and what does that mean and who are we in relation to it all yeah and um you know safe grounds are kind of tiny tiny little cog in a massive wheel and we haven't got a very high profile and we're not particularly well known but some of the stuff that we do is actually quite profound. Yeah. Well, we're starting back at Safe Ground. Charlie is gone, but we're left with... Nikki. Callie. Lindsay. And Keisha. And Keisha. Right, so Lindsay's new yeah. to this conversation anyway. Yeah. Um, we can start with you. What, what's your position in Safe Ground? What do you do? And why do you work here? Okay, um, that's a good first question. So I am the programs manager at Safe Ground, and I've worked here since September 2017. So uh, my role involves loads of different stuff, primarily the setup, delivery, quality assurance, and reporting of programs at various sites around the country. Um, and I work at Safe Ground. I haven't thought about why I work here in a while. Yeah. Uh, I've always worked for it. As long as I've had a career, I've always worked with kind of marginalised or vulnerable groups. Nice. So I've worked with homeless people. I've worked with refugees, survivors of torture, um, the long-term unemployed um, and kind of disadvantaged groups. Yeah. So when I read, when I was looking for a, kind of a new challenge and I read about Safe Ground and the work that they do, it, it appealed to me for all the reasons yeah, that I was involved in that work in the first place. Yeah, just all the boxes you're interested yeah. in. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Is it the art projects you sort out, or...? Um, no, so I run the programmes. So the art kind of projects are supplementary to that. The programmes have an arts methodology, and lots of work is created during a programme, but they are not the, they're not kind of sold or commissioned mm-hmm. as arts programmes. Somebody might disagree with me on that. Um, but they are the group work programmes commissioned by uh, prison governors or education providers. That's my area at the moment. The, it's getting harder and harder to, to get projects funded and, and into prisons. Yeah. Do you find trouble with that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm not sure that arts work was ever a priority uh, for this sector. I mean, what I, what I feel like prisons want is kind of vocational stuff, stuff that's going to get people a job when they get out, mm. do their English, do their maths. But I think underpinning any sort of progression like that is the self-development stuff that we do. But it's, it, it, you have to first understand that and then prioritise it. And I, I don't think very many places or people do. Um, so we try and push that agenda as much as possible. But definitely, I mean, we used to operate in many more sites than we do now. Commissioning routes have tra- changed drastically. Um, and the sector is such that things are... Um, it's been marketized. I don't even know if that's a word. Um, it sounds good. It's more of a commercial <clears throat> place yeah. than, than it used to be. And mm. I've only worked in the sector for a couple of years, but certainly I've noticed it becoming more commercial in that time. Um, budgets are really tight um, and prisons are forced to prioritise and this just isn't what they value necessarily. Yeah. A lot of it's really discretionary as well. If, you'd, if you're a prison governor who doesn't necessarily see the value in... Uh, therapeutic group work and you want the men in your prison to do an NVQ instead, then that's what yeah, you're going to spend I, your money on. I don't on. know what, what the problem is with that, because it, it might just be that it doesn't tick as many boxes as, a, as yeah. an NVQ. And I think stuff like, like self-development work is harder to measure so it's harder, you know, there are many more boxes to be ticked if somebody has passed an exam, reached a certain level of expertise uh, in a certain skill that mm. they can demonstrate, then I feel better, I feel more optimistic, I understand new perspectives, yeah. I've acknowledged and accepted my position and what will change or what won't. That's much harder to measure, mm. but it's just as important. So maybe it's like, yeah, it's it's it's... It's more difficult to demonstrate what might have changed. I suppose. I mean, just before we broke away, we were talking about officers' mess. Yeah. Which is um, working with prison officers rather than the prisoners, which is a pretty cool approach going in at next level, or whether it be a level up or a level down. It's, it's definitely um, one degree away from the prisoner himself. That's quite mm-hmm. a, a brave and bold move for both you putting it on and the prison officers taking part in it. Yeah. Was it accepted by the prison officers? I think I have no experience of uh, delivering that programme um, or evaluating it even. Um, but we, we've heard of experiences of resistance, mm-hmm. absolutely. I suppose if I can imagine myself as a participant officer or a member of operational staff somewhere, I, I'd wonder... Um, what the motivation was or what I was going to get out of it. I think a lot of... Uh, I can't speak for people in that job, but it's a lot easier for people just to go and get on with it mm. and stopping to 
um, take a breath or have that conversation can be really difficult. So I think it's really brave um, for those participants yeah. who decide yeah. that they're really just going to go for it. Because they, they, I presume that they can think for for a moment that that you might be saying that their job isn't working, yeah. which is why you want them to take part in this yeah. project. So there could be the, you know that barrier that they're putting up in front of you. Yeah, and I think I I certainly have to be really careful about how I speak about. I have the utmost respect for prison officers I, I couldn't do the job myself um, but when you're in the company of people who do the job every day you have to be really careful and sensitive to um, their situation mm. and their motivation and what keeps them going and actually that everybody's doing the, you know, as good yeah. a job as they can but it's really easy to be you know to say things that you mean in the moment but yeah. have, would yeah. have wider implications so yeah, there must be a degree of suspicion on their part, you know. And of course, it's always the uh, well, you wouldn't know because you don't work in prison. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I've been working in prisons for however many years, mm-hmm. four months, whatever, and and you and you can never know uh, what that might be like or what I need to do to cope with uh, what I see. So you know, are you worth having a conversation? Mm-hmm. With? And I won't. I, we won't ever know what what it's like because we no. haven't had that experience. Well, the last podcast I recorded. Uh, sorry, the one before last was with a gallery owner who was 17 years in the police force. Oh, really? So, yeah, he stopped just a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, and he was he was like a little bit disillusioned with... Because with, he, he wasn't doing... He wasn't just a normal sort of like copper on the beat. Yeah, oh. so he was doing all the juicy stuff. Oh, yeah. But he got disillusioned <laughs> with it yeah. and um, wanted to come away from it. Oh, OK, OK. So, um... Um, did he did he see on reflection after he left was he did he notice anything that he felt like what made him want to kind of leave that behind and, and do something else and what sort of gallery does he run now it's a little it's like a little quirky gift shop upstairs in Saffron Morgan in North Essex okay and downstairs is a little gallery okay and um, it was quite funny that there's me an ex-con doing a Podcast with yeah. like this mm-hmm. ex policeman. Mm-hmm. Um, what have you just got going on at the moment? Art related. Um, so in the new year, we have a relationship with the Roundhouse. So we're going to be uh, Safe Man's going to be twenty five years old next year in twenty twenty. So we're going to be doing some events around that and about. Um, Safe Grounds history and how we've got to where we are. Um, so we haven't decided when those are going to be, but um, we're going to have three or four events throughout the year at the Roundhouse. And then we usually have a symposium as well. Um, and that's like a, a, a day-long event where we invite people um, from criminal justice, um, alumni, if they can come, um, artists, academics, people that we've worked with or that are interested um, in our work and we usually have a few people perform, we have some people um, give talks about um, their field um, and what they're interested in Um, and then we kind of do like a group discussion or like audience participation um, exercise as well Um, and that's a really good day. Last year we had over 120 people there. Oh, nice. um, it was really busy. It was boiling in there. <laughs> it was like the middle of summer. Um, the event Charlie spoke about earlier was called A Matter of Life and Death. Um, and 
that was kind of about what happens to people in prison, what dies inside of them, or what doesn't, and how do you keep that alive. Um, that was a really special event. We had Lady Unchained perform there. We had one of our alumni, Richard, um, and another alumni, Jason, perform as well. Um, and what else did we say we were going to do in the new year? You've got the photo project? Oh, yeah. So we um, commissioned a photographer to do this project with three of our alumni members. So he's taken portraits of them in like a... Um, a place that's special to them so one place is um, at home one place is at church like different um, different venues that mean something to them and he, we're also going to have an audio with it as well about um, fatherhood and what that means um, to them and family so they've each written a piece and recorded it and we're going to try and display the, the photos with the audio and if they can come along as well and, and talk to people about how the project was and what happened in the project. Um, we're hopefully going to be taking that to some galleries if we can um, and and hopefully around the country so that we can, because um, our alumni live everywhere. Yeah. So, Do you find that, have you worked with galleries in the past? No, we've never worked with galleries. You've been to an event at... Autograph, yeah. mm-hmm. um, so you've been in contact with some people, but we've never kind of done um, that side of things. It's always been kind of poetry, spoken word. Yeah. Um, we've never really had our any of our art displayed anywhere because we do take pictures and have sometimes have Jonathan, our photographer, um, in contact with our alumni. But this will be the first time we're actually going to have a picture and people are going to interpret it how they want to and then maybe listen to the audio if they want to and, and see how that resonates with them and, and if they can look at the picture and know that that person has been in prison but also is a father or, or has all these other things going on in their lives. That's, the, I think, the whole kind of premise of the project. Um, so if anyone listening <laughs> uh, represents a gallery and would like to exhibit some visual art from Safe Ground, then that would be great. Yeah, you, you, I think find that there's quite a few people who will be sympathetic to what you're trying to do and, and help in some way. Mm. They may not necessarily be listening here, but yeah. I don't think it'll be too much of an uphill struggle to yeah. to get something like that. Yeah, I, I, I'd do something in my spare time that I won't talk loads about, but um, we, t- we coordinate visits to galleries and museums around London. We're doing it for three years. It's been a different gallery or museum every month. And we found galleries and museums really, really receptive mm. and open to hosting us and running workshops for us at no cost yeah. uh, and really, really accommodating. Mm. So I think once once a, a venue can, has the time, because I know they plan probably um, yeah. far in advance, but yeah, I think I think people are really open. Mm. It's widening participation and all that. Yeah, I mean, would you would you want something that was there for a week or two, or would you want it just to be a pop up? A pop up thing for the day. Um, I think that would maybe we we haven't completed the project, and I think that would be something we'd have to we haven't really thought about until we see the whole project finished and whether that it might be nice for like a one day event where we can have the person yeah. that's in the picture there um, talking about their experience, or where we just want to have no interaction whatsoever and people are just experiencing the art from so themselves. I think the bigger venues would be more willing to just put in something for the day yeah. that their visitors could have. I mean, you've got a 
couple of great galleries just along from here, haven't you? you know? mm-hmm. um, Damien Hurst Gallery just down the road, and yeah. they're sort of yeah. within walking distance yeah. from here, yeah. and being uh, local to them, that mm-hmm. might be a, a, a little yeah. selling point, you know, yeah. that they're doing something for the community. Yeah, true. Or for, for a, a cause within the community. Yeah, definitely. But, um, um, yeah, I think that's the kind of big projects that we've got going on this year, so far, next year. But things always come up as you're going along. Someone comes, gets in touch, and then we work with them and things like that. So that's what a big project that Nikki's been working yeah. on is trying to get our alumni involved. We have a network of probably about thirty to forty, about forty-five. I'd say about forty-five yeah. people that have cut after all our programs. Um, Callie or Lindsay um, give a form for them to see if they want to be involved um, with our projects or writing or anything. And um, there's usually a, quite a few people. Yeah. There's always. Like 100% take off. Everyone takes them, but where it goes from yeah. there, it's difficult. That's say. the difficult thing. Yeah. People moving prisons, mm-hmm. or do they even get what we're sending them? Or sending them back. So we're trying to make that That's a, cool. like a wider kind of um, network and trying to involve them more. And, yeah, sorry. Yeah, and get their voices heard as well, because a lot of our v- events when we've had feedback is about what happens to these stories that you're telling or, or the people that you've been involved with, do they know that your their story's been told or do they know that they've influenced your event? And so we've decided that we need to kind of let them know and kind of like include them in, in everything that we do as well. Yeah. And we have our board, we have three members of our board are um, alumni as well. Nice. Um, so we're trying to include as many people and a podcast is the perfect way to do that. Yeah. <laughs> also, just on that note, about art projects for the next year, the, mm. um, Nikki has kind of set the wheels in motion. We want more contributions from our alumni in terms of visual art. Um, And because we meet people all the time who are really keen to get involved and who are so creative and we'd love to have something from them. Um, So we'd really like to get that off the ground and be able to showcase some of the amazing stuff that's being created in prison as well. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I know I'm about to mention uh, another group, but the the Curse of the Trust just having their their Mm. show, and you can see that visual arts from anyone with a a deep story, it's almost just so powerful. Yeah. But no, I think creating art, yeah, but I wonder how many people get to experience, in prison get to experience art. There are no galleries, Mm. so unless you see something that somebody else has painted or sculpted or carved or whatever it might be uh, just look if you're not an artist but just to experience art and yeah. look at it and accept that you don't understand it but just take some time to think about it well, it's I've really never been in a gallery I've been studying art for that's amazing four years and I've never been in a gallery that's unbelievable I never knew how I was going to say how good I was I, I didn't know um, yeah. Yeah, I didn't know how good yeah, I was because yeah, yeah, yeah. I no friends, no I was only I was better than that prisoner. Yeah. You know, or, or not as good as that one. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I didn't have anything to judge by. Yeah. And then, as I said, I'd never been into a gallery, so I didn't know the etiquette. Yeah. Um, I'd never had a conversation with anyone about, not, well, not a proper conversation about art. We might talk about, I might talk to another con about a picture or a painting. Yeah. But, I, but it was hard to talk to them about it, and then going into a gallery. 
was yeah. really, really difficult. What was the first gallery? What gallery did you choose as your first? Tate. Modern or Britain? Britain. Oh, yeah. It was the first mm. one you went to. Okay, nice. And then I walked in, and Francis Bacon was my favourite. Oh, wow. go-to, or he's my go-to artist. Yeah. You know, I sat there for about half an hour. Yeah. Just on one of the benches watching it. Amazing, you know, yeah. My eyes That's are filling up now, it. just thinking yeah, about yeah. that moment. Have you ever been to Dublin? Um, there's a gallery in, in Dublin called the Hugh Lane Gallery. I know the Hugh. They've got Francis. Bacon. They do, and they to the to the T. I know. They've reproduced it, and it's really a sight to behold. You, one day you should go. But, yeah. yeah, looking looking at myself against other people. When I went to college, and um, because I'd, um, I, I don't know if you're aware, but I had some quite prestigious artists writing to me while I was in prison oh, yeah. for several years. Um, and I would read everything that they sent me. Mm. Um, and then when I got to college, I just realised that my knowledge was so much higher than the other guys. Who, and um, yeah, it was so much different. Yeah, you compensated for not yeah. being able to visit, yeah. Uh, to um, have like a writing day. So again, involving our alumni in that mm-hmm. and sending letters to them. Um, so that might be one of our events. Um, well... As we recalled this, just a few days ago, there was two murders in London, London Bridge. Mm. Um, I usual know more about this than I will, but it was at a conference to do with... Um, Tandem learning, learning between together. Cambridge University and... Um, I'm not sure what prisons it was. Yeah, various prisons. But it was, it was people coming out of prison on a thing called Rottle, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is released on temporary licence. The guy who... Um, carried out the assault mm-hmm. um, he was on probation at the time They're, I'm sure that the probation service prison service are going to be pretty, pretty quick on shutting down um, a lot of those avenues mm. do you think that will affect you at all? Yeah definitely I mean we, we found out today that um, they're stopping all events and anyone on rotel or probation can no longer attend events um, so that's going to affect us a lot because a lot of our um, events usually have alumni and people that um, can can access Rottle for the day yes. um, or for a few hours. One of our board members um, took one of our programmes and um, got Rottle for a day to come to our symposium last year mm-hmm. and that's how we kept in contact with him. He saw the kind of conversations that we had and, and wanted to be involved with us further and now as a board member um, everything I think every kind of event that that criminal justice organisations do they try and involve people and their stories because you know how powerful those are and it's going to be very strange to kind of um, talk about other people's stories and who you work with without yeah. them being there because hearing one-to-one about someone's experience is is much more powerful than, than you reading about someone, yeah. someone's well, story. Well, I'm quite sure that... I, I presume that because of what's happened, they're going to make a stance and tighten up completely. Yeah. And then through, through time, I'm sure that that belt will loosen. And mm. Or do you not no, think I mean, so? We would just climb that... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it depends on, we were saying, who wins the election. And it, it depends. It, I don't know. Maybe this is just a short-term thing. They're mm-hmm. just trying to show, yeah, that they're doing something about it. Or maybe 
they've heard that people are genuinely scared or upset and don't want to have people to have the opportunity for rotto. He couldn't have he couldn't have done two worse people, could he, that day? Mm. I mean two really quite amazing people. Yeah. yeah. Where can we bring it back to to finish off? Art. <laughs> um there's a question that I ask artists, which is if there was you and five other artists past and present, what would be your perfect group show? So if we were having a group show now, uh-huh. what artworks would you like to include? I know an artist I'd want to include. Go on. William Blake. Nice. Have you been to the tape Britain yet? No, I'm going Friday. So excited. <laughs> um, yeah. Do I need to explain why? You can. Uh, I, I'm all. speaking for everyone else. I don't know any artist, so you can go for it. Who would you include? Uh, I I appreciate Barbara Hepworth, so I would probably include something from Barbara yeah. Hepworth there, and also Francis Bacon. I think uh, it would it would be a terrible shame if he wasn't included. I really like Vincent Van Gogh. I know it's really obvious, but I think he's great. The only art I ever had in my house was. Uh, Degas, like the pictures of the ballerinas. Oh yeah, ballet. So that one, that's what I'd pick because it reminds me of being young. There's a tiny picture of like um, two girls in like a ballet class, and I, that picture reminds me of home. So Excellent. That's what mm. I pick. Oh, that's nice. Mm. Where can people see what you do, as in social media or website? Um, so our website is safeground.org.uk. Our Twitter is at safe underscore ground and our Instagram is the same as well. If you want to come to one of our events, check out our website because we always put them on there and on Twitter. And if you want to get in touch with us about anything, you can um, contact us via our website. Excellent. <laughs> Thank you very much. There we have it. Safe ground. Shouldn't we just stand up and thank Charlie and the guys at Safeground for all they do for those of us that find ourselves in that predicament? Everyone deserves a second chance, right? So as soon as you stop listening to this podcast, go over to their website, which is safeground.org.uk. They've got loads of great stuff going on over there, which all involves the arts. So if you're a creative person that may possibly want to help in a small way, just contact SafeGround. Well, that's it for this week. Like I say at the end of every episode, please leave a comment on whichever platform you listen to this podcast. Not only does it help us get noticed, but it is beneficial for anyone looking for an art podcast. So thanks for listening, and until next week, ta Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.